From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Ross. And I'm Tracy McRae. Each year, more than 150,000 Americans are diagnosed with colorectal cancer, and more than 50,000 die from the disease each year. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. On today's program, we'll learn about the importance of screening from a Mayo Clinic expert. The larger they get and the longer they're allowed to sit there, the more likely they are to turn into cancer, which by definition grows from the, the mucous membrane lining of the colon deeper into the wall. That's when they become cancer and that's when they become dangerous. Also on the program, Dr. Jake Strand joins me as co-host. We'll get an update on the measles outbreak and flu season. And two women share their breast cancer story. That's this week's program. Up next. Most cases of colon cancer begin as small, non-cancerous or benign clumps of cells called polyps. Over time, some of these polyps become colon cancers. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, of cancers that affect both men and women, colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in the U.S. But it doesn't need to be that way. Colorectal cancer is also one of the most preventable cancers if people get recommended screening. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and here to discuss colorectal cancer is gastroenterologist Dr. John Kissel. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you again, Dr. Kissel. Thanks for inviting me back. Happy to be here. Good. Uh, it's, I guess it's a pretty important deal if it gets its own month. <laughs> I, I think it's a pretty important deal every month, but uh, we talk about it more in March uh, to raise awareness uh, of the disease and the need to prevent it. What are the risk factors for colon cancer? Well, un- unfortunately, a lot of the risk factors for colon cancer are not terribly specific. They include a lot of the things that your mom told you not to do, like uh, eat too much, eat too much fat, too much red meat. Uh, smoking and drinking are both associated with colon cancer. But for the most part, the, the biggest risk factor we can identify would be just your own increase in age over time, something you can't change. Um, men are slightly more likely to get it than women. We can't change that. Um, and rarely there are genetic conditions that can raise risk, uh, and you can't change those either. Do we have any idea at this point what causes colorectal cancer? Why do these polyps turn cancers? Well, we think that it has to do with uh, small errors in the proofreading process. When cells divide, they have to copy their DNA each and every time. And cells in the colon, uh, because they... Uh, grow rapidly and have to turn over every few days are, are constantly having to copy their DNA. And a one in a million error uh, can add up if you're having to make new copies every few days. That's what a polyp is, a mistake in the copying of those cells? Yeah, we think that um, there is uh, either a mistake in the copying process or damage that might be induced to the cell through some of those environmental exposures that we talked about over a person's lifetime that can cause the cells to then grow abnormally and turn into polyps and eventually cancer if not removed. So what's the difference between the cancerous polyp and the regular, the plain polyp? So the, the, the plain garden variety polyp are, are precancerous. So they do not uh, invade more deeply into the wall of the colon. They're confined to its inner lining, and they can be very easily removed with a, uh, a colonoscopy, for instance, if detected. Um, the larger they get uh, and the longer they're allowed to sit there, the more likely they are to turn into cancer, which 
by definition grows from the, the mucous membrane lining of the colon deeper into the wall. That's when they become cancer and that's when they become dangerous. So on a long enough time scale, all polyps will eventually become cancers? We think that process takes about 10 years. Um, what's surprising uh, to many people is that many polyps will not turn out to be cancer. If you you know, have five or six polyps, uh, most of those, maybe five out of every six, will involute and go away. We know that from uh, long-term radiographic follow-up studies of patients. But uh, occasionally a polyp will go bad, and uh, that's what we want to try to prevent with screening. So it has come to my attention, and now that I've got a lot of friends that are starting to have colonoscopies, that there are some people that they make more polyps, their body is just more prone to do that than others. Is that a genetic thing then, or just person to person? It it probably is a genetic thing, although the number of specific genetic diseases that we can tie to people who make polyps at a greater rate or who make more polyps than others, uh, are, very few of those have been identified. So as... Someone who uh, participates in screening, once we identify a person with polyps, we want to figure out how many did they have, uh, how many have they developed since their last screening exam uh, of, of whatever kind they had, and try to figure out what level of risk those persons are at. But um, importantly, we should emphasize that even though we know about genetic factors, we know about environmental factors, we know about family history, the disease is common enough, even among people who lack a lot of those exposures, that we still really want to focus on screening the general population. And that makes colon cancer prevention one of only a handful of diseases that we treat that way. Screening the general population is done to prevent breast cancer, uh, uterine cervix cancer, and colon cancer, and to a lesser extent, prostate. You kind of mentioned before that men are a little more likely than women to have colorectal cancer. Are there certain other populations, certain races, or anybody else who's predisposed to be more likely to have Yeah, that's a great question. So we know that there is some racial diversity, and and there are many factors behind that. They may be genetic, they may be environmental, they may be socioeconomic. Um, There's a population in the United States, Alaska natives, who actually have the world's highest incidence of colorectal cancer. More than twice as many uh, will be diagnosed uh, than patients in the uh, white patients in the Mm -hmm. lower 48 states. Um, there's also been a lot of attention paid to some of the um, poor outcomes among African-American patients um, in the United States, uh, and there are several uh, societies that actually encourage them to start getting screened at an earlier age, uh, beginning at age 45, as opposed to age 50, when uh, most of the rest of the general population should start. You talked earlier about um, the, you know, it's a good cancer to get caught early. I guess is the best way to put that. You know, you don't. Nobody wants to get cancer, but if you're going to get it, you catch it early through screening, and that's your best option with the problem. Correct. Well, by that I mean that we don't want patients to develop symptoms of the disease. That is usually associated with uh, advanced stage illness that's going to be more difficult to treat or potentially is not curable. Um, those types of symptoms would include unintentional weight loss, bleeding, abdominal pain, a change in stool habit, uh, anemia. Uh, those are usually signs we don't want to wait to see. We, we would ideally like to find uh, high-risk polyps uh, and curable stage cancers when they're not symptomatic and at a point when they can be removed either endoscopically or surgically. That's what I wanted to ask about was the symptoms then. There is uh, symptoms of the cancer. Are there symptoms of polyps? 
Polyps are usually asymptomatic. In people who have a huge polyp burden, they may be more likely to have diarrhea, uh, but that's a fairly uncommon scenario. So, again, hammering home the point that waiting for symptoms to develop or only getting screened if you have risk factors that you can identify uh, is not consistent with uh, the general practice recommendation. Is that part of why colorectal cancer can be so deadly? Because... If you don't catch it early through regular screening, it's almost too late at that point. Well, that's what we that's what we want to prevent. So, um, more advanced stage cancers um, will be the ones that have spread into lymph nodes. Those are the ones that require chemotherapy in addition to surgery. Uh, cancers that have spread outside of the abdomen uh, into you know outside of the the colon into the lung. Uh, or into the liver are also therefore much, much more difficult to treat. Um, and, and, you know, that disease spread is something that we really don't want to see. Let's talk about that because that's when you get to the stages, when mm-hmm. it starts to, let's go through the different stages. Sure. So uh, a stage one uh, tumor is one that is uh, uh, small and confined to uh, the wall of the colon. A, a stage two tumor is going to be slightly larger Stage three is where it goes into lymph nodes. And again, that's kind of a critical distinction because that degree of spread means that we have to not just remove the tumor, but we have to apply, apply some degree of systemic therapy. That's therapy to the whole body to try to treat tumor cells that have escaped the, uh, the local mm-hmm. environment. And that usually means chemotherapy and sometimes radiation. Um, and then stage four tumors, although there are surgical options for those, um, only a minority of those patients will have a durable cure, and many will require some form of ongoing chemotherapy uh, in order to uh, prolong life and survival and quality of life, uh, but they may ultimately succumb to the disease. So, Dr. Gissel, myth or matter of fact, one in three U.S. adults isn't getting the recommended screening for colon cancer. Ooh, is that a myth or a fact? Unfortunately, that is a fact. Um <laughs> That one in three result was obtained when uh, investigators sent surveys to patients to ask them if they were participating in colon cancer screening, and that could mean exposure to any test that could screen for colon cancer, um, even if it was not intended as a screening test. An example of that would be uh, a test for um, uh, blood in the stool or a colonoscopy for abdominal pain or diarrhea, that's different than going in with no symptoms and asking for a screening test, which is what we encourage. So when people have gone back and looked at the medical records of the people that responded in those surveys, the real answer is it's closer to only one in two Oof. who are complying with regular programmatic screening uh, to prevent the disease. So what are the recommendations for screening? So most individuals in the United States right now are encouraged by several uh, guidelines and uh, preventative services task forces to begin screening at age 50 in the absence of symptoms. Um, those screening recommendations are altered if you have family history of colon cancer. Um, I won't go into the details, but generally we would ask you to start a- around age 40 or potentially earlier. And as I mentioned earlier, African Americans are encouraged to start screening in the absence of symptoms at age 45. Uh, and that's been endorsed by primarily GI societies rather than national level uh, preventative care service uh, task forces. Who else should be screened uh, at a younger age? So patients uh, who have inflammatory bowel disease, that would be Crohn's disease of the colon or ulcerative colitis, 
they typically start a surveillance program that's different from screening because they're in a high-risk category. They start surveillance about 10 years after the onset of the symptoms of their disease. Uh, there are also uh, much rarer uh, genetic conditions such as Lynch syndrome or FAP, uh, Poitiers-Jagers, juvenile polyposis. There are dozens of them that we're identifying. Those patients all have customized surveillance recommendations based on their family history, and those differ for each of those diseases. Collectively, you know, people with a strong genetic risk really only account for about 20% of the cases of colon cancer that we see. And people with a specific genetic disease that we've identified, now that's only about 5 or 10% of people that develop colon cancer. I, I think the idea of a colonoscopy is inherently unappealing for most people. <laughs> are there other screening options for those who are putting off getting a colonoscopy? Yeah, so there are multiple uh, different testing options that have been uh, endorsed at the national level. And I think the um, the overarching mantra is that the best test is the one that gets done. Um, at Mayo, we primarily offer colonoscopy, CT colonography, the multi-target stool DNA test, and uh, fecal immunochemical testing. Uh, there are other centers that may offer some other ones like flexible sigmoidoscopy, um, there are some other tests that can be provided to patients if they're not able to complete one of those other exams for some reason. But those are the, the major backbones of screening. Uh, it has been <clears throat> proven that the prep is the tough part when it comes to the colonoscopy. I'll just say that straight up. What is your tip that you have for patients? Well, here's what I've learned. Don't eat a lot in those days going in, and I hope that that made a difference. Well, that's exactly correct. <laughs> so that you, we're supposed to do that uh, right, anyway. Right. So, uh, one of the big things that we want to eliminate from our diet uh, up to a week before the exam would be sources of dietary roughage. Uh, so all the good stuff that you're supposed to right. be eating all the time. It's kind of fun. The whole grains, <laughs> the high fiber, <laughs> uh, those can stick around in the colon for a long time. Uh, as you get closer to the exam within two or three days, you're probably going to want to approach a more liquid diet. Uh, so a liquid diet would be anything that you can see through. So black coffee counts. Um Popsicles, uh, jello, tea, broth. We want to avoid things with red or orange food coloring, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then uh, there are a variety of things you can do with the prep itself. So there are multiple generic and prescription um, prep products that are available. Um, we generally think that splitting the dose of the prep, so taking some of it the night before the exam, about half of it, and then the other half the morning of the exam actually results in a better clean out overall. Uh, prep can be unpalatable. I have mm -hmm. patients that say that it's better if you chill it and drink mm -hmm. it through a straw. Some patients suck on a lemon. <laughs> uh, there are also um, over-the-counter prep cocktails that we can provide. Uh, we have instructions, for instance, here at Mayo on a, a prep cocktail that can be made from over-the-counter ingredients like Miralax, uh, Gatorade, and uh, magnesium citrate. And many patients tell us that that's probably the most palatable option. The big point is it's not a reason to not... Get your colonoscopy done. Absolutely not. <laughs> Let's talk about research and uh, the study that you're working on. Yeah, so um, we're we're doing several studies in the colon cancer space. Um, we talked earlier about guidelines, and uh, an exciting but potentially controversial new guideline came from the American Cancer Society uh, last year, who suggested that. Uh, patients at average risk uh, in the general population start screening at age 45. 
Um, the recommendation is controversial because um, we don't have as much evidence around that recommendation yet as we would like. And most of the evidence that we have now is based on computer simulation. So we'd, we'd like more to work on uh, with, from the real-world uh, clinical data. Um, so we talked earlier about different screening tests. Uh, our group has uh, studied uh, the stool DNA test extensively, um, and there is a clinical trial that is now enrolling nationally that would allow patients age 45 to 49 uh, to get a free colonoscopy and a stool DNA test as as part of that study. So um, there are advertisements for that available now on social media. Uh, so interested patients should keep their eyes open. We're hoping to start enrolling for that uh, in you know days to weeks. Uh, so we're very excited about that. So the goal of this research is not only to be able to do a better job of, of diagnosing or, or looking for uh, predisposition, is that right? I mean, what, what are we looking for in these clinical trials? Well, you know, one of the reasons that the new guideline has been issued is that while we have reduced cancer incidence and mortality in patients above the age of 50 through population-level screening, we're seeing kind of a disturbing trend where, you know, there's a growing percentage of cases who are patients coming in under the age of 50, uh, and we don't yet know how to prevent that phenomenon or dent that trend. It's still a rare enough problem that uh, we're not sure if screening the whole population will prevent it. So that's why there's interest in, in changing the guidelines and why people are asking that question. We've been talking about colorectal cancer and colorectal cancer awareness for the month of March with Dr. John Kissel, gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kissel. You're very welcome. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Jake Strand joins me as co-host. We'll discuss the recent measles outbreak with an infectious disease specialist. And later on the show, two friends share their breast cancer journey. And now with the latest health and medical news, here's Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. It may seem hard to believe, considering that you use your hands and wrists to do almost everything, but some of the most common wrist injuries are caused by overuse and repetitive motion. Dr. Sanj Kakar, a Mayo Clinic orthopedic hand and wrist surgeon, says you have to get creative to avoid overuse injuries from activities that are hard to avoid. Holding a laptop, typing, texting, things like that can be culprits, he says. And what we're talking about primarily are tendon problems. Now, the tendons are like ropes that help you move your fingers. So if you do have issues, every time you move your wrist, going to, into what they call ulnar deviation, or pointing your thumb down, you get sharp pain in that area of the wrist. So you should try to cut back on doing the repetitive activity that caused the pain. Therapy does help, Dr. Kakar says, and therapies can include ultrasound to calm the area down and sometimes a splint. If things get worse, corticosteroid injections decrease inflammation, and if that doesn't help, surgery may be an option. And as tough as it can be, Dr. Kakar says the best thing to do is to try to prevent these injuries. In other news, yoga. Yoga postures that flex the spine beyond its limits may raise the risk of compression fractures in people with thinning bones, according to research from Mayo Clinic. The results appear in the journal Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Researchers at Mayo Clinic and elsewhere have described injuries from yoga. This study examines injuries in people with osteoporosis and osteopenia, conditions characterized by low bone density. 
Osteoporosis is a disease in which bones become thinner and more porous from loss of mineral content. Bone loss that has not reached the stage of an osteoporosis diagnosis is called osteopenia. Yoga has many benefits. It improves balance, flexibility, strength, and is a good social activity. But if you have osteoporosis or osteopenia, you should modify the postures to accommodate your condition. As people age, they can benefit by getting a review of their old exercise regimens to prevent unwanted consequences. Patients who incorporated recommendations to modify their movements in the study reduced their pain and improved their symptoms. Talk to your health care provider about poses you should avoid or poses you should do. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Measles outbreaks in two states, New York and Washington, have public health officials scrambling to try to contain the disease. These new outbreaks have occurred despite the fact that measles was supposed to be eliminated in the United States nearly two decades ago. How is this happening? It's due to significant numbers of children not being vaccinated. And here to talk about the measles outbreak is infectious disease expert, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tosh. It's good to see you again. Good to see you guys. Thank you for having me. Whenever I see a story that there's a pocket type of outbreak like this, I know you, Dr. Poland, I mean, your heads are probably any pediatrician that we ever interview, your heads are exploding um, that's basically what happened. It's a whole pocket of non-vaccinated children, right? Yeah. And when you're looking at sort of vaccine hesitancy issues, and that's what this is, right? It's not people who don't have access to to vaccines. It's people who are choosing not to vaccinate their kids. Um, and anyone who would uh, objectively looking at the data would not make the decision not to vaccinate their kids. Um, but often it is people whose neighbors and close friends are not vaccinating their kids. And so it, it sort of sways your view of, of what the data might be and which sources you are looking for for truth. Um, and so if you know, there's a social pressure that people don't uh, recognize in themselves in that if your friends are not vaccinating, there is a real social pressure that if you vaccinate your kids, you may be ostracized by the community that that wow. is around you, right? And so... In the setting when there is no measles, because everybody else is getting vaccinated, that is a very, actually, a very real subconscious decision that people make, right? And it's, uh, you, there, you, when you look at decision making, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's, uh, o- overt decisions and then things that are a little bit more subconscious. And you will, people will create the reasons, like, well, the vaccine is, can cause all these harms and things like that, but, Often it is that social pressure that the people that they are around, their support um, are not vaccinating their kids, and therefore they're not going to do the same for their kids. Let's talk about measles for a second. What is it about measles that makes you so sick? So the the virus is extraordinarily contagious. That um, it's amongst the most contagious uh, organisms we have. How quickly does it spread? Oh, it will. I mean, you can go just go through it an, an unvaccinated or uh, otherwise susceptible population. I mean, quickly. I mean, within days, um, and uh, people are going to be you know, coughing and and uh, you know spreading the virus. And it can actually it's airborne, so it actually stay in a room after somebody's left it. And if you know, within a couple hours somebody else comes in who's susceptible, like they can you know, get get the disease. Um, because vaccines have been so successful, we've forgotten about 
how terrible this disease is. We've lost our community memory for its impact. Um, Which I don't think is a surprise. It isn't, right? It's sort of a victim of its own success, right? right? That, um, and even look at, uh, in, at the year 2000, WHO looking at on the worldwide measles deaths, and we're looking at over half a million children every year dying. And thankfully, we've increased vaccine um, availability in the developing world. And those numbers are now about 150,000. But we're still talking about 150,000 kids dying every year from a vaccine-preventable disease. Uh, we, as a sort of in developing in developed countries, have forgotten about all that and forgot about that impact. Uh, I can tell you that we would expect that if 500 Americans who have access to American health care were to get measles, that we will f- between one in 500 and one in 1,000 will die in an industrialized country with modern medical care. It is a severe infection. Um, you know, th- thankfully, the, the outbreaks are not that common, and often it triggers uh, those who are unvaccinated or whose kids are unvaccinated to get vaccinated because suddenly that risk changes in their mind. Yeah. But uh, you know, we don't see that many measles. And so thankfully we don't see that many measles deaths. But if we continue this trajectory where we don't have kids just universally vaccinated who can get the vaccine, which is almost everyone, then we're going to see more measles cases. And then we're going to start to see more measles deaths. Well, and Dr. Tosh, I think what, what sometimes you mentioned the victim of its own success. It's a, it's, it's a really important thing to remember. It's also not just, oh, well, these are otherwise healthy kids, so maybe it won't be so bad. I mean, I've, I've seen some of that rationalization. Yeah. I think the piece that worries me as well as a, um, you know, having a, some close friends dealing with a, an illness like acute leukemia, um, and having taken care of a lot of patients whose bodies are immunosuppressed through things we as physicians give them as part of trying to treat other diseases. We leave other populations vulnerable who either cannot get vaccinated um, or are going through treatments that leave them susceptible to these these infections. And so it's even the harm that can be done, we may not see it because it's not our own child, um, if that's something. So I, I guess I wonder, when you think, when you counsel patients um, who have immune suppression, who, who are going through illnesses where they need to be more careful, how do you talk to them about kind of the risks of being out in public when with with all this unknown, where we don't know what the vaccination rates are, so how do you how do you do that with patients? You know, I will. Um, patients often ask me that, and they actually ask me about unvaccinated relatives often. Sure, and um, you know they're they're they want the kids around them, but also don't want the kids around them, right? And uh, that's a difficult discussion. Uh, some of these diseases are going to spread before people are really symptomatic. You know, mm-hmm. Measles is contagious before the rash um, really gets all over. And so, you know, is it safe to be around a, a kid with a fever um, <clears throat> if you're immunocompromised? And the general answer to that is no. Uh, but, you know, in, you know, encouraging the kids to get vaccinated. But, you know, if they haven't listened to their own doctor, they're unlikely to listen to this other person. Yeah. Can you have measles? And, I mean, obviously not everyone dies from it. Is it just a severe case of measles results in death? Or, I, I, because I don't know, is it like chicken pox where you maybe get a slight case or a severe case? Yeah. So there is a spectrum of disease, and most kids will get a high fever and a rash, feel pretty lousy, and then get better. Uh, there are, however, those 
will get complications, including pneumonia and encephalitis, so infection of the brain itself. And, uh, you know, those are the ones who end up dying. As long as we have you here, let's ask a quick question about the flu season. Sure. How are we doing with the flu season so far? Depends where you live. <laughs> so it's interesting. Uh, usually it's one flu strain, usually NH1N1 strain or NH3N2 strain that predominates as the epidemic in the year. Uh, unusual for this year is that different parts of the country are having different strains. So most of the United States, it's an H1N1 strain. And in the southeast, it's a H3N2 strain. Um, the H1N1 strain that's in most of the country is well matched to the vaccine strain. Um, and usually H1N1 has higher vaccine efficacy. However, in the, uh, about 70% are, are for H3N2 in the southeast uh, seem to be well matched to the vaccine. So uh, I presume people in the southeast of the United States are actually having a far worse time with influenza uh, than the rest of the country. Um, and so, yeah, this is an interesting year. Um, in general, H1N1, H1N1 epidemics are less severe than H3N2 epidemics. Um, but you know, for the person who actually has influenza, uh, it's pretty bad either way. Yeah. Well, and it, it's um, it's interesting that you bring up the vaccine efficacy because, again, we often, um, like lots of things, we don't complain or don't worry as much when things are going well. And it's when things are bad that we forget all the hard work that goes into figuring out how to match strains to vaccine and, 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 and the ramifications that that has for the health of a, for the health of a country. So it's a, it's a impressive year for health officials being able to do things well. Yeah. And it's also, it's more complicated than that even when we, if it's a well match and we're still looking at between 30 and 65% of vaccine efficacy. Now that's to prevent the actual illness, but we do know that even if you get, the infection, if you've been vaccinated, you'll have less right. severe complications. You know, kids who have gotten vaccinated are far less likely to die. Anecdotally, I was going to say that's the folks, the adults that I know who have gotten the flu did have the shot and have it much less severely mm-hmm. than yeah. other people do. So that's of, good. Yeah. One of the things about vaccine preventable diseases is, is that uh, you never notice when they're working. <laughs> right. Like today, I didn't get polio. Yay! <laughs> We've been That's talk- tough. <laughs> yeah, like, <how> do- <laughs> We've been talking some uh, hot topics, including measles outbreak and the update on flu season with infectious disease specialist Dr. Pratish Josh. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks a lot. Melanie Peterson and Lindsay Strombeck became good friends while they met working at here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. While they shared friendship and employer for five years, what they could not have known was that they would share a life-changing journey as well. Melanie and Lindsay were both diagnosed with breast cancer, just two months apart from each other. Another similarity, both were diagnosed before the recommended age for a mammogram. And here to share their story is Melanie Peterson and Lindsay Strombeck. Welcome both of you to the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. So you met at work. How long have you worked together? Um, We met in 2012 in the Mayo Medical Secretary training program. Um, we were part of the last class. Um, we kind of connected because we lived in the same town, mm-hmm. um, had kids around the same age. and It was meant to be your friendship. It was meant yeah. to be. It's kind of stuck together ever since. Yeah. Who was yeah. diagnosed first, Melanie? Um, Lindsay was diagnosed in November mm-hmm. of 2017. And you? I was diagnosed in February of 2018. Wow. So, Lindsay, we'll let you go first. Tell yeah. us your story. Um, I was diagnosed, um, after finding a lump myself in a self-exam, um, I didn't think to do even a self-exam until 
a coworker of mine was diagnosed with breast cancer through a routine mammogram. So I thought, okay, I should check. It's been years since I've had a clinical exam, and then I found a lump. Uh, went into the doctor right away, um, was told, okay, it could be hormones, just wait a, wait a while, come back if it doesn't go away. Fast forward to um, November, it's, it's probably three months later, uh, November went in to see my doctor, um, sent me in for the mammogram, ultrasound, kind of knew something was up after the fourth mammogram. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and then received the diagnosis a week later. And how old so were you? I was, I just turned 36. Yeah. I mean, so. I mean, I can't imagine what might, must have been going through your head at that yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of had a feeling it wasn't going to turn out well, yeah. considering the lump didn't go away or, right. you know, um, but definitely not what I was expecting at 36 years old. How about you, Melanie? How old were you? I was 39. Okay. So I was kind of right on that border of needing a mammogram. But I actually, once Lindsay was diagnosed, you know, and we, I, I did a self-check, found something that felt like nothing I'd felt before. Um, I actually waited about a month, you know, because that's what they recommend. Mm-hmm. You know, wait for the hormones. Didn't go away. I was in for another just primary care appointment and I had her look and she said, I think we need to get it looked at. Mm. Um, so I had a diagnostic mammogram the same day. So it was Valentine's day last year. Um, and I also had to do, you know, the four step mammogram Mm -hmm. and then, um, an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And that kind of confirmed, I knew when I left that day. So did, what was your course of treatment? Did you both have, you must have both had chemo because I love your short hairstyles. (laughs) Rocking the short hair. Um, So our cancers were completely different Mm -hmm. um, because there's different kinds of breast cancer. Um, I was um, stage two um, uh, estrogen and HER2 positive. Mm -hmm. And then Melanie. I, mine was hormone positive, HER2 negative. Yep. Um, invasive ductal carcinoma, and then I also had um, inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I had a lot going on there. Yeah, and so both fa- any family history for either of you? No, no, wow. no, nope. no. So, well, and I think when I just this is a, it's a I'm glad you brought this story forward because I, mm-hmm. I was actually just at a, con- a breast cancer conference mm-hmm. this last week, and one of the things that heard from a lot of people who were at that conference um, as patients also attending a run was how cancer could be so isolating. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, e- even when you have a large group, it can still feel isolating because even people who are around you giving right. you support aren't actually going through it. So right. I wonder if you two could talk to about how you supported each other through that. Um, well, Melanie was actually the first one that I told wow. that I had cancer before I even told my husband and my family. Um, we ended up having dinner plans that night with another friend and I said, I still have to go cause I was a mess. Sure. So I, I need the distraction. I want to go. So I told, so Melanie found out even before my family. And then when she told me that she found a lump, I thought, no, that's, it's, it's, <laughs> right. it's the rest of your coworkers. Get yeah. Nervous. Right. Right. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, uh, and when she told me that it was cancer, I just, like I was devastated. 
just how, devastated. How helpful to have a friend going through it with you, Melanie. It, it, it was. Um, you know, it, it's bad to say that we were fortunate, but I think yeah. we really were. Absolutely. You know, yeah. you had that person that, you know, knew exactly what you're going through at that time. Yeah. You know, because we both have amazing friends and family, but you just don't know what you're going through until you have it yourself. Right. You know, so, you know, and we supported each other you know, through text messages, probably 80 times a day. Yep. Um, we went to each other chemo. Yep. I think we, we were, were there, buddies. you know, first lasts and everything in between. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, it, you just can't beat having a friend. Yeah. Did you both have surgery and radiation as well? I had surgery, um, no radiation. Okay. So. I had um, surgery. Mm-hmm. I had a unilateral mastectomy. Um, and then I also had proton beam. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. that was an interesting experience. <laughs> and so what was it like for for either of you to be able to support each other? And as you go forward, how are you changing your, okay, we've gotten through our treatment. Yeah. Now we need to support each other for the next step of the journey. Yeah, I think, um, you know, people kind of, when they're going through treatment, it's kind of just, a routine thing like okay I got I just got to make it to that next chemo I just got to make it to that next surgery um, and then after the fact there's so many other emotions that you're dealing with um, just because you know you just went through this horrible year and there's a grieving process and you know so it helps a ton to have somebody who understands and doesn't you know make you feel bad for feeling that way. (laughs) Um, You know, if you're angry one day, they totally get it and, you know, aren't going to think badly of you. Yeah. And and sitting with each other through all the different uncertainties. I mean, that's a Mm -hmm. a remarkable story. I I wonder, are there things that you want people listening to know um, looking forward, looking ahead? Um, definitely if you feel that there's something wrong, go get it checked. And even if, you know, because I, when I went in for my first appointment, you know, they were like, oh, it's not cancer, you know, and it, you know, at the time I didn't think it was either, but it was still there. It was still growing. It didn't move. Um, so definitely if there's anything that, you know, Self-exams aren't as recommended as they once were, but knowing what your breasts are like and what's normal for you is Exactly, exactly. Because I think, you know, when you used to go in for your annual exam, you know, you used to go in once a year, you'd have everything done. Mm -hmm. You know, and there used to be placards on the walls, you know, posters, Mm -hmm. and it seems like slowly a lot of that has gone away. You know, and now, you know, with my primary care, it's once every five years. So if you're not doing your own self-exams, you know, you're going to go another five years without somebody noticing something, you know, so you really got to be your own advocate and try to find it yourself, you know, that's a a great message all the way around. Proactive Mm -hmm. as you can be. Yes. Um, Finally, if you don't mind sharing, what is your prognosis going forward now? Um, They've cleared me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like down to the semi-annual exams now so every six months I go in but um, I did neoadjuvant chemo so I had chemo before my surgery and at surgery they found I had a pathologic complete response to the chemo so Mm -hmm. chemo completely obliterated every cancer cell that was in there so my prognosis 
they tell me is really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's so good. hopefully, knock on wood, it stays that way. Yeah. How about you, Melanie? Yep. Um, I'm about the same. I had about a 90% response to chemo um, and then surgery. And with radiation following, I should be cancer-free for hopefully well, a long time. Invite us to your uh, five-year party that you need to throw yes. for us. Right. Exactly yes, right. for sure. We are sure. taking a, par- we are taking a oh, party yes, to we celebrate. Are. That's we, good. With our husbands are going to Scotland in a few months yeah. just to kind of celebrate this whole last year and mm-hmm. get some That's great. Both. Yeah. We've Fun been talking uh, we've been talking with Melanie Peterson and Lindsay Strombeck, two Mayo employees, two friends and now two breast cancer survivors. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio and Dr. Jake Strand, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.